0: Hi everybody, this is Rusty, alcoholic and addict, and I've been in recovery uh, since November the 26th, 1983, so today being November the 23rd, in three more days, I will have 40 years, and now that is a miracle. I never dreamed in my life that, that I would have that, or that I would actually live that long, I'm 82 now, so... I was 42 when I got when I got sober. So with that, I'm going to tell you what it was like, what it used to be like, and what it's like now. And that's been a journey. Before I get into my story, I want to read one paragraph for you, or part of a paragraph. It's out of the 12 and 12, and it starts on page 79, and it says, In many instances, we shall find that though the harm done others has not been great, the emotional harm we have done ourselves has. Very deep, sometimes quite forgotten, damaging emotional conflicts persist below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they may actually have given our emotions violent twists which have since discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. And the reason that that means so much to me is it it explains to me, and this is actually what what they're talking about. Bill was talking about when he wrote this. Many of us have experienced trauma in our lives and moved through it, not even know that it, it was traumatic, because a lot of it happens when we're children. And so we just adapt to that and do the best we can. So you'll hear some things from me that were traumatic for me and have been traumatic for a lot of people in recovery. I come from an alcoholic home. Alcoholic, actually an alcoholic family, many generations of us. And my mom had married uh, an alcoholic. In fact, she married three, three, three different men. They were all alcoholic, and they all worked on the Frisco Railroad, and they all knew each other. Now, my mom didn't think there was anything unusual about that. So my dad was... A person that he worked every day, and he was drunk every day, and he went to work that way. He was, worked on the Frisco Railroad, and he worked out in the yard, so he didn't have a lot of people around him. One night when he came home, uh, and I was probably around five, I think, and and he was drunk again, and he was ranting and raving, as us alcoholics some of us tend to do, and he was threatening my mom to kill her and us, and and somehow we got out of the house. We never went back, and this was in the late 40s uh, after the war, and she had no money. He wasn't paying child support so or giving, us, giving her any money, so we had to be put in a home, me and, and my little brother, Jimmy. Now, back then, they would might have called them orphanages, but today they, they call them homes and DHS takes care of all that stuff. Well, back then it wasn't that way. So while I was in the home, I had one of those traumatic experiences. Now, nobody thought much about that at all, but it sure affected my life for many, many years. And I'm not a big guy at all, even today, but I was such a small child and and two or three guys got around me and uh, I had to go to the bathroom real bad and I tried to go inside them and they wouldn't let me go in. They're taunting me and making fun of me and all that and so finally I went I just went to the bathroom in my pants. I couldn't help it. And so when the matron comes out and takes me inside and has me undress and then she put me in these uh this big shower stall where all of us showered and turned on the showers and then she had all the kids come through and make fun of me while I'm standing there naked and and the water coming down over me. And I, that feeling that, that came over me, it, uh, I even have a hard time describing it today. And I know that that woman was trying to teach me a lesson not to crap my pants anymore. And uh, so far, I haven't done that. But the message that I got, the message that I took out of there was no one's ever going to make fun of me again. And no one ever did. And it got to a point that I, I, it didn't matter if you were joking around with me or if you were serious, I couldn't tell the difference. And I know today that that's all about, you know, low self esteem and all that other stuff that we talk about. But for a child, it was devastating. So I carried that with me through most of my life. So later on, mom. Had made enough money, and she had met another another one of those guys on the railroad, and she married him. And we got she got me and Jimmy out of the home, and uh, they started a life together with us. And of course, him being an alcoholic, the same thing as my dad, there was always money problems. Somewhere around eight years old, we had moved out to another place that we were renting, and had a next door neighbor guy probably in his early 20s and uh, he became real friendly with me and finally asked my mom one day if he could, he had a horse and he wanted to know if I could come and ride the horse with him. Asked my mom, of course mom said yeah, and when we got to the barn there was a price to pay to ride the horse and the things that he did to me in that barn and had me do to him to say it was a traumatic experience, I think, is understating it, at least for me. And what, what I could tell you about that is that it wasn't until I was 12 or 13 and came to realize a man's sexual place in the world and a woman's, and then to realize the things that I had done to him, it sent me into shame that I had never felt before. Because once you realize some of those things, you wonder, I used to wonder, you know, am, am I okay? Am I, am I a gay person? Am I a straight? What, what am I? I, I? Because back then, this was the early 50s by then, they didn't have the information that they were giving out anyway about that. No one talked about those things. And I never told another human being about that till till I was doing my fifth step. I felt so much shame and guilt about it that I couldn't even write it down in a fourth step. And I blurted, finally blurted it out at the end of my fifth step. And Ken Jr. was my sponsor. And he says, you know, have you got anything else you want to say that you haven't told me, Rusty? And I just blurted it out. And then, of course, Ken came back and said, you know, I had... Pretty much the same thing happened to me, which all of a sudden lightened my load. But it took me another six or seven years to really deal with those issues. But I saw a therapist and kept my sponsorship going. And you know what the steps can do for you if you're willing to work the steps, if you're willing to do the work, you can be free of anything, anything at all. Doesn't matter what it was. But you've got to do the work. By my teenage years, and I I started drinking about 14, 15, somewhere along in there. Now, believe it or not, there were no drugs in my hometown of Sepulpa, Oklahoma when I got sober. When I was growing up, this was about 1954, 55. And I had still a lot of rage and anger. Me and my stepdad, uh, my stepdad was a pretty violent guy. I can remember, I must have been in the third, fourth grade, and when you're a child, and you, a lot of you will, will get this, when you're a child, your cognitive ability is you don't have that introspection yet. That comes later. Here's an example. I'm sitting in the front room, and I'm over in the corner, and my stepdad got into it with some friends that were visiting, and they were all drinking, and pretty soon... Oh, this gal had put her foot up on the new furniture that they had bought. And he got so mad that he was cussing at her and her husband standing over, not not knowing what to do. But anyway, he started picking up the furniture. And this guy was like 280 and strong. And he started picking up the furniture and throwing it. And uh, then my mom got into it with the woman, and they were fist fighting. And now I'm a young child sitting over in the corner. It's like I'm this movie projector. And I'm ta- and I'm taking this and recording it. No sound. I'm just recording the pictures, and that's what stays with me is the pictures and how those I could see all that violence. It was like like when I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when my stepdad would call my name, he would call Russell Owen and I might be outside playing or something, and the fear would come over me right then. The fear was, was so deep and so intense for me because I knew what was going to happen. But from the time that he called my name till he got me to the bedroom where he would make me take down my pants and, and then he'd take off that belt and start whipping me, the, the whipping I could take, it was that fear that just drove me. And I lived with that. I lived with it every day. That and the anger, and, the, and it became rage. I just didn't know those words. I didn't understand any of that. I just felt that way. So by 17, I'd got kicked out of school and, you know, the regular thing and, and joined the Navy. And then in the Navy, uh, that's when your alcoholism, if you, if you might have a tendency to be an alcoholic, and I believe that I was an alcoholic from the day I was born. If you, ha- if you think you might be an alcoholic, it, once you go into the service, you'll find out because that's when the drinking really took loose on me. And my time in the Navy, real, really, you know, when you're 18 and and I spent the next four and a half years in the Navy. So you're growing up in the Navy and there was always those fights and there was court martials, and there were captain's mask and it was like one every week there was something it seemed like for me that i i could do really well in the navy but my military behavior sucked i couldn't get down i I didn't like to take orders i didn't i didn't like to follow rules so that helped me stay in trouble and so at one point they had sent me to alaska to kodiak island because i had uh, gotten in more trouble so they decided that I probably would uh, be okay if they sent me to the Kodiak Island. And I, I was supposed to be there for a year. And at six months, you would be able to go up to the biggest city in, in Alaska and then sp- have a weekend there and, you know, do what we do. And so before that, I had got in a fight with a guy. Now, this was, this was me. I got in a fight with a guy because... Uh, He had told some people, was making fun of me about my, uh, I had acne. And he was making fun of me, and this guy told me he had been making fun of me about that. And so after I get juiced up at the club, I go back and I just beat the crap out of him. And I got a captain's mask. And my punishment was, you don't get to leave and go to, uh, on that three-day pass. So I spent a, a year on Kodiak. When I left there, I went home on leave. And I was going out with this gal and of course we had sex and I went back from leave and, and this was in San Francisco and I started dating another girl there. And by that time the gal in, in Tulsa, I mean in Sapalpa was calling me and writing me letters saying that she was pregnant. Well, I just acted like I didn't, didn't get that. So finally they wrote a letter to my commanding officer and he said, you're going to have to go home and take care of this problem. So I go home, and I marry the girl, and then I went. I never lived with her and went back to the Navy. And then I had another six months left in the Navy, and uh, I got out of the Navy, and the, the girl that I'd been dating there, when I got back home, I started getting calls from her that she was pregnant. I had saved a lot of money in, up in Kodiak. I'd saved $1,500 for in the Navy back in then. was That's a lot of money. And I'd bought me a 60 Chevy convertible. Man, I loved that car. And I was out drunk and totaled it. And I didn't have any insurance, of course. And by that time, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go back to, to San Francisco. So I left. I had already tried to divorce the the girl in the smallpa And I was going back to live with this gal in San Francisco, which I did. And then this is when it really comes crazy. When she was eight and a half months pregnant, she was working. I wasn't. All I was doing was living out down in the bar. She went up, got up, and went to work, and I packed my bags and left without even leaving a note. Now, those are things that will cause that self-hatred. You know, it talks about that self-loathing that that alcoholics have. That was the beginning, really, of of the self-loathing of myself. So I had left both those women, and I went down to Southern California, and I met a gal down there and married her and we moved back to Tulsa and I had two children with her and my drinking continued to escalate. And when I was 29, I went in, uh, into business with a buddy of mine and the real estate business. And we started and we're doing real well there. We had three offices, uh, 60 salespeople. It just was anything a guy could ask for, but my alcoholism, became worse and worse. And by the time I, about when I was 34, I got a call from Monette, Missouri, where my dad uh, had retired. And they said, your dad has died. We need for you to come up here and bury him. So I went up. Now, this is a man that had never had anything to do with me or my brother. Uh, the last time we had seen him was, was when I was 13, and, and Jimmy was, uh, of course, he was three years younger than me. And we went to his hotel room over in the old Baker Hotel in West Tulsa. And I can still remember that pint of whiskey sitting on his, on his dresser drawer, and, there, and then there was this ashtray next to it. And it was full of cigarettes, you know how they just they spill over onto the onto the uh, top of the, the wood there. And he gave us both thirteen dollars and he told us not to come back. I've always wondered, is it worse never to know your dad to be adopted out or is it worse to know your dad? and he'll never have anything to do with you. When I was 16, I remember I had got my own car, and I'd draw, I would drive over to West Tulsa, and I would wait for him because he hung out at the Alibi Lounge there on Southwest Boulevard, and I would go over and, and wait just to see him. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get out of my car. I wouldn't try to talk to him. I'd just be sitting over there waiting for him to come out. There's something about that. It, it's, it's more than betrayal. It just... Eats at your soul, or he did mine. So when I got up there to Monette to bury him, I'd find out that that what he had done, he had killed himself. He was seventy-three, and they told me that the woman down at the bar would know more about him. So I went to the bar where he hung out, and she had told me that he he was so sick that he couldn't drink, but she would feed him. And one day he told her, he said, don't check on me because I'm going to be gone for two or three days. And so after a while, she started wor- worrying about him. So she went over there and, and got in his room and he was laying there. On, he had a little half bed. He had a one room and he had a half bed, just just like every place he ever lived. And he had a big wash pan beside the bed there. And what he had done, he, he had taken that wash pan and, and slid his, his left wrist, and then he had laid down and put his arm in that wash pan, or his hand in there, and he bled out. And that was his life. And I remember being so angry at him for never having anything to do with me. Fast forward, as we would say, I was getting DUIs about every four or five years. Many fights. I had one that, that the Highway Patrol. This is my. This is a story I like. I do like to tell because it tells you the alcoholic in all his glory. You've heard of Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. Well, this is the rest of the story. My version. I'm handcuffed and they're walking me through down at the county downtown Tulsa. And they're walking me into the county and. There's me and two high patrol and another buddy of mine that they had also, and we were, they had us handcuffed. And as soon as we got through the door, my buddy yells, look out, Rusty. And before I could turn, the, the, the big highway patrolman hit me in the back of the head, knocked me down on the floor. It's that aggregate concrete, you know, it's hard as hell. And he stomped me on the back of the head and crushed all my teeth on both sides. Now, there's a... In AA, you'll see people that they keep telling the same story over and over, and they're trying to get people to feel sorry for him or trying to get, get votes where he can tell his story. So the rest of the story is I was out on the, on the highway coming back from and We was all drunk. There was about six of us in the car, and that one buddy of mine, he was driving up a, ahead of us, and he ran off the road, and uh, I jumped out to try to help him and hit hit this embankment. And so the highway patrol, and I'm, I'm uh, by the way, I'm directing traffic out there on, on the expressway. And the highway patrolman comes up, and he says, sir, you need to get in your car. We'll take care of this. And I go, no, you don't get it. I'm directing traffic. And he says to me, sir, I'm going to tell you one last time. And this when he put his hand on my shoulder. And when he did that, I hit him. And me and him went to the dirt, and then the other highway patrol came over and billy-clubbed me down and took me to the county. You see how that story changes? It changes from being a victim to taking responsibility for the truth and who, you, who really was at fault here. Now, you might say that they didn't need to do that to me, and maybe they didn't. But if I hadn't have been drunk out there on the highway, if I hadn't have been out there directing traffic... And damn sure if I hadn't hit that highway patrol, none of that would have happened. And that's what we have to do as alcoholics. We have to start trying to get out of that victim role and take responsibility for our actions. And once we can start to do that, then we've got a chance. But as long as we stay a victim, we're doomed to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. Now, I was doing what I was doing. Finally, my my third wife left me, and I got two more DUIs in that last year. And so the courts sentenced me to go to AA. Back in 83, that's all they did was they didn't have all drug court and all that kind of thing. So they sentenced me to AA for a year. Now, here's the thing that, that we've got to remember. I love this saying, you don't sober up Adolf Hitler and get Oral Roberts. Now what do I mean by that? For me and for any alcoholic or addict that comes into recovery and you've done away with the alcohol and for me with the Valium. Now it was hard harder for the for me to get rid of the Valium than it was the alcohol because the alcohol I could see the evidence of what the alcohol had done to me. But the Valium was my buddy. It protected me. I could take I knew how many to take. I knew Just the amount to take to knock me clear out if I wanted to be out. So when I go into AA and they say, any mood-altering drug, you got to give up. And I'm going, you mean Valium? And they go, yeah, we mean Valium. So I went cold turkey, not knowing that there's, I didn't even know about trying to detox from something. So my behavior, you bring I brought all that, that insane behavior into recovery with me. I didn't leave it at the door. You're the same person. You're just without the drug. So there was many behaviors that I didn't change, one of them being a womanizer. I was single 17 years in AA. In the first seven, eight, nine years, I continued to do certain behaviors until I finally got my ass kicked. And that's when things started to change for me with relationships. During those years, I had sponsorship. I went to meetings at least four or five times a week. I sponsored people. I did all those things. I made amends to people. But that one character defect, or what I like to call self-defeating behavior, that means I'm doing it to myself. And I have the power to do something about that. And so I started practicing that. And the the armor that we carry through our life, because every time one of those instances happened to me, whether it was at the home and pooping in my pants, was it the sexual abuse, was it the, the rage that I felt towards my stepdad, and I spewed that venom out into the world is what I did. Until I could work the steps over and over, and also getting outside help. And also a sponsor can only take you as far. You know, a lot of people haven't experienced sexual abuse. And some of the stuff that some of us, in fact, a lot of us have have had in our past. So each one of those traumatic events are still buried within us. And we have to get help for that. If I don't, I'm going to drink again. Or I'm going to use Valium again. Or I'm going to use marijuana again. Or, you know, the list goes on. Anything to keep me out of reality is what I used to do. At 17 years sober, I had surrendered a lot of things. And I I asked God to put somebody in my life because I felt really that I was ready to be a good husband. I'd been a good father went by the after I got sober. But boy, I hadn't been before. But my children, and I had four of them, knew what I was that I wanted to be a part of their life and it took a while but they came to believe that because it takes a while for people to start trusting again. And a girl by the name of Julianne, who is my wife today, came into my life. And she was in Al-Anon. And I, of course, being rusty, I asked her, I said, why don't you move in with me? She said, no, I'm not going to do that. She said, if you ever want to get married, then we can talk about that, but I'm not going to do that. So eight or nine months later, we got married. (laughs) And now we've been married 23 years. And I've been monogamous that whole time. It's been the greatest thing that's ever happened for me, is have her in my life. Now, one of the things that When I finally accepted this has helped me the most in my sobriety is on page 90 and 91 of the 12 and 12. And it starts out by saying that any time I'm upset, no matter what the cause, something's wrong with us. Now, I fought that for the first seven or eight years of my sobriety. And then I started putting it into practice. And if you read the rest of that, 91 and 90, 90 and 91, that's in the 10th step, by the way. It talks about quick-tempered criticism, power-driven arguments, and self-restraint, the lack of self-restraint. You have, I had to have self-restraint because I had reacted. I had reacted to everything and anyone in my life. Now, that may sound easy not to react, but most of us don't know the difference between act to set and... Let me back up for a minute because this is, this is really important for me to remember. And I remember Michael B. saying this for years. It's about the pause. Now, the spiritual axiom, all the spiritual axiom says, it's not saying that I'm wrong in the sense of right and wrong, in the sense that if I'm right, you've got to be wrong. It's in the sense that something's going on inside of me that is not the norm. So what is it when when I start to get those feelings inside or I start to feel that anger? Something's wrong with me, and then I react automatically without thinking first, So if I am not willing to do the pause, the spiritual action won't help me. I've got to be willing to pause and go, Rusty, why are you upset? What's wrong with you now? Not in the sense, again, of right or wrong, but in the sense that something's wrong with me. And when I'm willing to do that, it will change my life. And I can promise you that if you try it, if you'll try the spiritual axiom and the pause, it will change your life. It'll change your relationships with every person on the planet. I continue to do what we call the work. I continue to do that. Now you would might think that the guy with 40 years would have it pretty well down pat. Well, this one doesn't. I still go to four or five AA meetings a week, still do sponsorship because I want to leave the planet knowing that I've done my very best with my life. So thanks for listening today. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. Children of Chaos, is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.